Well, it's good to see you, and uh, you know, this is a special week, and it's Memorial Day, and uh, this is a time not to forget. It's not to forget loved ones who've passed on. Um, it's not to forget those who've served, that we have our freedoms. And we don't want to forget those who've gone before us, that allows us to have this Seventh-day Adventist church here today. There were others who went before us who started this physical church, but there are others who went before us to start this movement. And uh, the best way not to forget is to carry on the torch, carry on that which is good and build on it. And what God wants us to do is, first and foremost, is, is to always remember him. You know, every day and everything that God has done for us is something that we should never, ever forget because... That is our motivation to move forward. Let us pray. Our Father, this day is a memorial. A memorial of creation. A promise of recreation. A promise of a new earth. And a new body. Of eternal life itself. So help us, Father, never to forget that all good comes from you. We want to thank you for how you worked in those who've gone before us, how you worked in their lives, our loved one, family members, the pioneers of this church, and those who were before them, the reformers. And so, Father, help us to be that last generation because we haven't forgotten. We haven't forgotten why you raised us up. And so, Father, as we continue, as we study this message on the sanctuary, Help us to always remember this plan to save the human race from the, not just the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin itself. In this we all pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, we had been talking about the Sabbath, and we'll continue to talk more about it. But I want us to talk today about the sanctuary, which will eventually it is to talk about the Sabbath. But the, the sanctuary and the message of the sanctuary is telling us how we ultimately can be one with God. Because by faith, you begin in that courtyard that we'll look at, and then by faith, you move on to the holy place, and by faith, you move on into the most holy place, wherein is the presence of God. Every step of the sanctuary doctrine teaches us how to draw closer to Him, how to become one with Him, to think like Him, to feel like Him. And this is why he says, I want you to build me a sanctuary that I might what? Dwell among you. And the Hebrew actually supports that I might dwell in you. It actually has that support there in the Hebrew. But one of the things he tells us to do is he doesn't build the sanctuary for us. He tells us to build it according to his instructions. He says there's a cooperation because ultimately you really are the temple of the temple of God. And there's a work that we do in cooperating with him to be built up into a spiritual house. All of us actually together, not just individually, but together we build a spiritual house for the dwelling place of God. And as we draw closer to him, we'll feel more of his spirit. We'll feel more of his presence. That that's only as we follow his instructions. Because ultimately he's the only one who knows how to save us. And so in this sanctuary message that we're going to be looking at, God's people even had, before Christ came in our flesh, had seen the gospel plan acted out every day, how there would be this lamb. Someone would come and die for our sins, okay? And we'll get into more of the details as we go. But there's this sin problem. There's only one way of salvation, and that is God's way. Is that right? There's only God's way because the sin problem if we really just sit down and think about it, it's way above our head. It ultimately is too complex. The power of sin is far greater than we know. Uh, It's so deep-rooted in us that we become essentially sin. Sin is in us. And Paul realized that in Romans 7. There's something in me. There's something wrong with me. Now, how do a people who don't fully understand it and are deep-rooted in it know how to save themselves? The answer is there's no possible way they could. Only God could tell them 
how they could be saved from such a problem. Is this true? Absolutely. And that's why it becomes so important that we study this sanctuary doctrine because we want to know what God's plan is to save us from the penalty, which is what? Is death. The penalty of sin is death. And if no one dies for us, we're just going to die in our own sins. But if someone dies for us and takes away the penalty, there's still another problem. There's the nature of sin itself. He can pay the penalty, but he's got to get the sin out of us. That sinful nature, right? And change our nature as well. And so the gospel is really twofold. It's about how Jesus pays the penalty and through him, our natures can change where we're not leaning towards sinning. We're leaning towards doing that which is right. He makes us righteous in himself. Okay? It's just so complex that even we're told that angels will contemplate this plan of salvation for how long? For eternity. It's so deep, so complex. We will be thinking and thinking for the ceaseless ages. How was it that the creator of heaven and earth would become one of us? That will be a theme we'll talk about over and over and over again because it is the greatest expression of love in the universe. Okay? Now, in this comment in Great Controversy, page 409, the scripture which above all others have been both a foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith was the decoration under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The verse that ultimately separates us from every other church is this verse. It's a verse that points to what? The heavenly sanctuary, which is what? The plan of salvation. Which means that the churches out there have an incomplete understanding of this plan of salvation. And it has become essential for the human race that before time runs out, the human race has a complete understanding, as much as we can understand, of the plan, God's plan, to save the human family. Because without this plan, sin problem is too complex, then men are going to come up with a lot of different plans, and they've already done that. You've got some churches where you're saved by your works, and you do penance, and you do you confess your sins to a priest, and others got one saved, always saved, and some say, well, just do the best you can. Those are incomplete, if not just downright wrong. God needs a people who look at the plan that God has because it's the only one that's going to work. And we study it until it becomes a part of us and we share it with people because it is the good news. It is the everlasting gospel. Now, that verse, Daniel 8.14, is talking about not an earthly sanctuary but the, the heavenly sanctuary and how it would need to be cleansed. Um, now, that verse... Talking about a heavenly sanctuary, being that Christ died here on this earth, and he died how many times? Doesn't have to die again. So why need a heavenly sanctuary? What would go up there? If he's not going to die in heaven because he's already died once, he must be doing something in heaven then, right? What would he be doing in heaven? He'd be functioning as our high priest. And so in God's plan, and this is where a lot of churches get it wrong, they only have... The lamb. They don't have a high priest who's interceding for them this very moment for them. And if they only knew that, they would realize how much power, how much of all of heaven is on their side, helping them moment by moment that Jesus himself interceding for him, all the angels involved coming to planet earth to help suffering humanity. If they only knew how much heaven's in operation right now for their salvation. That is not just something that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. It's what he's doing this very moment for you. Okay? Now, there are some beautiful verses here. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also... Who's he? Jesus, that's right. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to how much? That come unto God by him, seeing he ever to what? makes intercession for them. 
The verse doesn't say they're saved to the uttermost because he died for them, though that's part of the plan. They're saved to the uttermost because he intercedes for them. When does Jesus start interceding for us? When he ascended into heaven, right? After his crucifixion. We are saved to the uttermost because Jesus did die for us, but we're saved to the uttermost. And that's what people need to experience. Saved to the uttermost from sin because he is up there interceding for us. Don't you want to be saved to the uttermost? Then you need to look at Jesus more than a lamb slain for your sins. We have to look at Jesus as the one, the high priest, interceding for us right now in the heavenly sanctuary. Now notice this verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 and 18. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is what? In vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are? They're perished. Look at the next verse, Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much being reconciled we shall be saved? Which life? When? After the resurrection. Because notice, you put these two verses together. If Jesus, when Christ won, what Christ won on Calvary, that went with him into the tomb. But when Jesus arose, he ascended into heaven, and he took his merits with him. And this is what Paul's saying. This is what the gospel writers are saying. If Christ did all this for you in this flesh and died for you, but if he rose not again, you can't be saved. He would have to rise again as a high priest so that your faith's not in vain. That Jesus as your high priest is just as essential as him dying for your sins as the Lamb of God. Because the life that we're saved by is the life he rose with. I'm saved by the death of Christ and live in a sinless life. He dies and takes my place. But if he's not raised again to have that immortal life, my faith's in vain. I'm saved by his life, what he's doing right now. Jesus' resurrected life is just as important to me as his death. Does that make sense? Now, John chapter 8, verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free from what? Error and sin. Truth. But if you only have a little bit of truth... There may be some things you don't know how to overcome. But remember, he's trying to save us to the... And so what we want is the truth. We want the whole truth about the plan of salvation. We don't want half a truth. We want the whole truth of what God's doing in the plan of salvation to save us from the penalty and from the very power of sin itself. Now, in this verse, in Hebrews... And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can what? Never. So these earthly priests, they'd sacrifice a lamb, and then they sacrifice another lamb, and then ten and a hundred and a thousands and ten thousands of them. But not a one of them. Not one of them would be sufficient to take away sin. But this man, who's this man? Jesus himself, after he had offered one sacrifice, his own death, right? For sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. That means he rose, right? From henceforth, from that point on, expecting till his enemies shall be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. In that verse, it's saying that you can be not only justified, but sanctified because he not only died, but he's sitting at the right hand of the Father because he rose again as our high priest. This is the means of our sanctification. That Jesus shed his blood, but Jesus is up there now applying his blood to our account. 
he applies that victory of his life for us. Okay? This is very important. Now, in building the wilderness sanctuary, the design was not up to man. I mean, how many different designs would you get? What if God said, okay, Brooklyn Church, I want you all to come up with a design for the sanctuary. How many would we get? If there's 70 people here, we'd get 70 designs. Is that right? But there's one design that makes sense to us, that explains it, okay? And so in Exodus 25, 40, and look that thou make them after this pattern, which was shown thee in the mount. So Moses was shown which should be built, how the sanctuary should be built. And in the book of Hebrews, now of the things which we have spoken, this, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set at the what? Right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man, because he wouldn't do it right. Seeing saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. God had, it was just the same as God writing his ten commandments with his own finger. If we rewrote those commandments, you see, he didn't leave that to slaves after 4,000 years of slavery. He says, I'm, I'm not going to base this on what you remember my commandments to be. I'm going to write these with my own finger. Don't cha- change a dot or, you know, or anything. A tittle, is that right? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Can we move a little closer here? <laughs> okay, so here is what God had shown him to build. This, this isn't what Moses saw up there. Because the sanctuary in heaven is so vast that billions of angels, billions of God's angels worship him there. Is this right? It's huge. It's so vast and it is so beautiful. But Moses was shown how to make a copy of that. Isn't that amazing? How do you make a miniature of that? But only God could tell him how to do that. Only God could show him what to do. And what we're going to look at here is we're going to see that this is a courtyard. And this is going to represent Jesus' time on planet Earth, right? This courtyard represents his earthly ministry. Because it would be right here, and we'll be going over this as we go through this. But the penitent would bring his sacrifice right here to the, to the gate or the veil. And that veil was 30 feet wide. But it was low. You see that? How low that is? And then this one is not as wide, but it's higher. And that's basically telling us, just come as you are. Come to the sanctuary. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how many, done it, how many times you've done it. The front door is 30 feet wide. Imagine if our door was 30 feet wide. What are you telling to the world? Come. doesn't matter. doesn't matter what you've done. But as you walk through that big wide door, you come into the sanctuary and, and you, if you want to go further, the door gets a little what? Narrow or higher because once you've come in and received forgiveness, you need to start walking the, the straight and narrow way. But if you start walking the narrow way, your experience is going to get higher. Is that right? So you come at your lowest experience right here. That's why the wall is low, but it's wide. But you come through, you're forgiven for your sins, and then you still walk by faith into a door that's narrower but higher because God's going to instruct you, and God wants us to get overcoming sin and have that higher experience. But we're also going to be talking about, in this tent area, there is the, what we call the holy place and the most holy place. There's two compartments, and we'll break that down as we go. So this is uh, just a little copy of what we would see in the tabernacle. In the whole, in the, here's the holy place, and here's the most holy place, okay? And if we go back to this one, whoops. So what we're looking at there is the inside of this is here. They walk in here, the holy place, three pieces of furniture that we'll talk about, the candelabra, the seven-branch candlestick, uh, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, which stood before, representing... First and foremost, Christ's merits ascending. Because if Christ doesn't live a perfect life, our prayers are useless. 
We need a perfect Father. I pray all this in, in His merits, in His name. Because of Him, I can pray to you. Because of Him, because God's presence was here in the most holy place. And so the thing that gets you closest is you can shine for Jesus, you can eat Jesus' life, but when you commune with God in prayer on the basis of what Jesus' merits are, that draws you closer to God than anything you're going to do in your religious experience. All three become important, but one was closer to the presence of God. So we're going to talk about this compartment. Now, uh, this was literally two compartments. Nobody argues that the Hebrew tabernacle had two compartments, holy place and most holy place. Now notice this verse, John sees Jesus in the holy place. It says in Revelation 1, 12, and 13, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and that was the voice of Jesus. And being turned, I saw what? Seven golden candlesticks, not in an earthly temple. In fact, there couldn't have been an earthly temple because John seen this vision in 96 A.D., and the earthly temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So there is no earthly temple for him to look at. This has to be the heavenly. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, which would be, which would be Jesus. So in 96 A.D., he's on the island of Patmos. He's in vision. He sees the heavenly sanctuary, and Jesus is right in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks. That would be the holy place, right? Okay, the holy place in the most heavenly sanctuary. And then Paul says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So Paul wrote mostly about the heavenly sanctuary, but John's the one who actually saw it. He, he even saw the most holy place. He saw the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's only one possible conclusion from the verses that we've looked at. If the earthly had two apartments, the holy place and the most holy place, then the heavenly sanctuary has what? It would have to have two apartments. Now, there are some in our, not here, but in the denomination who've preached that there's only one apartment in heaven. And that's wrong. Think of the implications of teaching that. That would make God a liar. Because God's the one who showed him what's in the mount. And if God says build two apartments, then God must have showed him something false if there's only one up there. You see what I'm saying? See my point? God is never lies. What he showed Moses is what Moses saw on the mount about the heavenly. And if Moses builds a two-apartment tabernacle here, there has to be a two-apartment tabernacle in heaven. Okay? And even Paul wrote about it in Hebrews 9, 2, and 3. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, the first apartment, wherein was the candlestick and the table that we saw and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. That would be that most holy place. So scripture itself tells us there were two apartments. Uh, The heavenly has to have two apartments. And why is that significant? Is because when Jesus ascended into heaven, he went into the first apartment, the holy place. But a time would come when he would go into the most holy place And that's significant because that's the beginning of the day of judgment and the day of atonement, when the books would be open and judgment. This, my friends, is Daniel 8.14. This is what separates us from all the other churches, that main verse where we're telling the world that judgment is, is come. It's already started. And nobody wants to hear about a judgment, but they need to. It's like Noah saying a flood's coming. You may not like to hear a flood's coming, But you better hear this, because it is coming. And there is a judgment. And the judgment's actually already started. If it started, it's certainly going to come to a what? It's still going to come to an end, and Jesus brings his reward with him. And this is a message that nobody else is preaching except God's remnant church. This is why he raised us up. This becomes a central pillar to our faith. Now... We kind of, here's just a diagram. I want you to notice some. Here's that courtyard where you saw the altar of incense. I mean, the altar of burnt offerings where the sacrifice was. There was a labor. And then there was that two-apartment, two-compartment sanctuary. The holy place with the candlesticks, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, 
And then the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place. Imagine, imagine, see how it's centered here? How the altar is in the center of this courtyard area. And the center of this is, is the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that cool how God arranged that? Um, we begin here. We begin with an altar of sacrifice because that's where the gospel begins. The gospel begins with us accepting Christ's sacrifice for our sins. But ultimately it ends here. God's trying to begin us here, but he wants to bring us here. And in this most holy place is, there's a lot of things. First of all, on the wall are embroidered angels. Because God wants to prepare you to live amongst the angels, to be all part of heaven. We've been separated from heaven. That Christ is that bridge. He brings us back. And it all begins with being forgiven of our sins. But also in this is God's presence. The reason we want a beginning to our Christian experience and our walk is to basically lead us closer and closer to the presence of God. And when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, where will God be? He's going to be right here. Can you imagine that? That you'll have a place out in the country that when you go to the city, guess who's there? The Father and the Son. That's pretty cool. You know, in this little world, we feel like many people feel God so far, far away. And yet, not so long from now, we'll be residents of his kingdom. Right? Now, there's also in here the Ten Commandments. The reason we need to be forgiven is because sin is the transgression of the law. That's why we need to be forgiven. That's why there's a sacrifice. We need to be forgiven so that we can walk this line of faith so that the commandments can be written in our hearts and our minds. That it becomes second nature, that you want to do what's right because you want to be one with God. You want to be near God. You enjoy His presence. And you don't want sin to ever separate you from God. You want to experience that joy and so forth. There's also, as we'll study later, it won't be today, but there's a jar of manna, and there's Aaron's rod. These two things also represent how we can have this most holy place experience, okay? But that's for a future sermon here. Now, as we think about God having them build a sanctuary, he wants to have them to leave Egypt, It's interesting that he didn't have them build a sanctuary while they were slaves in Egypt. He would first free them from Egyptian slavery, and he would free them from the environment of sin to go out into a wilderness. Does that sound like a message for us today? We've got to be careful not to surround ourselves by the environment of sin. God wants to free us from worldly television and worldly novels and worldly thinking. God wants to free us from these things because we can be enslaved to them. But God says, if you want to draw close to me, you've got to get rid of that earthliness, experience that freedom from that, and we'll talk more about it. But as we go through these, these various parts of the sanctuary, the courtyard ultimately begins with freedom from guilt because all of us have sinned and we feel what? We feel guilty. And that's good that we feel guilty. Because when you feel guilty, you want to be comforted. And the only way to be comforted is to be forgiven. So we've sinned. Doesn't matter how many times. It brings forth guilt. But to be comforted from that guilt, we need to be free from guilt. And the only way to be free from guilt is to accept Jesus as your personal Savior who took your place So that when you accept him, God doesn't look at you as a sinner. He looks at you as if you are righteous. And now you can be comforted that God's not going to punish you because you've accepted his son. Jesus took the punishment for you. Is this right? All our sins were laid upon him. And if he becomes your substitute, then you're free from that burden of sin. Now, the holy place that the, the, the penitent sinner would confess his sins, and we'll get more into this, upon the, the sacrifice, 
and that blood would be taken and sprinkled into the holy place. But by faith, we don't want to just stay out in the courtyard. We don't want to be just forgiven. We want to walk by faith into that holy place where there's these three pieces of furniture. Now remember, Solomon said a three-stranded cord is not easily broken. If you take away one of those cords, it's just not as strong. So after we've confessed our sins, God says, now I want you by faith to walk into the holy place. I want you to go through a door. It's narrower. You're going to start walking the, the narrow way, but your experience, you're going to grow. And you're going to grow because you're going to practice every one of these three pieces of furniture. You're going to be like a candelabra. You need to shine for the world. If you wake up in the morning and you say, Father, use me today in your service. I want to shine for Jesus. I want to do something to help suffering humanity. You just gain strength to overcome what? The very sins you just confessed in the courtyard. Because in the courtyard, I'm just simply freed from the guilt. I'm not necessarily free from the power of it. You see what I'm saying? I need to be free from the guilt and the condemnation and the power of what I've done. And this is why the gospel's not working in a lot of places because it's not a full gospel. When they just think about being forgiven but not changed, it's the same person asking forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness because maybe the condemnation in their mind's been taken away. But the bad tree that produced the fruit is still producing bad fruit. And the holy place is about how to chop down that bad tree. How to get rid of the bad tree that keeps producing the bad fruit that I have to keep asking God to forgive me for. And he says, this is how you chop down the bad tree. Wake up in the morning and say, Father, use me today in your service. That doesn't mean you have to stand on this street corner and preach. But God leads someone into my life that I can be a blessing, that I can be kind and loving and show your spirit of love and kindness to them and to be able to share a word of hope, encouragement, right? Use me today. It's not the number of people you help. It's the sincerity by which you do this work. The woman who gave two mites gave more than all the wealthy people that day because she did it from her heart. And that's what, he- that's what heaven looks at. He looks at the heart. And, and being that we've been comforted by God forgiving us our sins, we look out in the human race and we see all these people burdened by guilt and sin. And knowing that God has comforted me, I want them to be comforted too. Billions of people in our world, everywhere. You'll never run out of a ministry here. Amen. Of people under the weight of guilt and uncertainty, not knowing where to go, who to trust. But you know who to trust. And you want them to have that same joy, that same comfort that you enjoy. Is this right? And you'll always have that as a ministry around you. Lord, lead me to that person that you want me to serve. But see, that's the candelabra. And if you wake up in the morning and you choose to be a light for God, you've gained power to overcome what you just confessed. So let's just say, I just confess to God my impatience. Father, forgive me my impatience. He forgives me. But how am I going to overcome my impatience? i got to keep walking forward. And if I choose to be used of God's, in God's service today, have I gained strength to overcome impatience? Will God honor that? And then there's the table of showbread. And that table of showbread represents the life of Christ. And we'll go over more of this in detail. But if I eat Jesus' life every day, if I say, you know, I am hungry for righteousness, and there's only one who lived a a holy life, I choose to eat his life today. I'm going to take time to study what Jesus said, something he did, and I'm going to eat it, because if I eat something so perfect, it's going to do what to me? It's going, to make, it's going to perfect me. Yes. Not that I'll be perfect that day, yes. but I'm engaged in the process of perfection. Yes. God is taking me and leading me to become more like himself, Amen. which was his original creation. Now, if I do those two things, have I just gained strength to overcome impatience? 
Absolutely. God's going to honor that. But there's a third thing. If I draw close to God in prayer, that altar of incense, and I enjoy His presence, and I want to raise my petitions, I don't just want to say, I want this, I want this. It's no like, Father, where do I yet fall short? I want to be like Jesus. Help me to be recreated in Your image. And you pray like that, and you say, based on the merits of Jesus, I know You'll show me and help me to overcome all my defects. God's going to answer that prayer every time. And if you're in that kind of communion with God, have you gained strength? Friends, you do those three things every day. It won't matter what you confessed in the courtyard. You'll gain strength to overcome it. But if I wake up in the morning, I study the life of Christ, but I don't want to be used and I don't pray, I just lost some strength. If I pray, but I don't take time to study Jesus' life and I'm not willing to be used in His service, I've lost something. I've lost power. God says, I want to empower you. But remember, he told them that they had to build the what? Yeah, we've got to build a character. A dwelling place for God. There's a part we play, and every piece of furniture tells us how to construct this temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay. And then you start thinking, wow, what would the most holy place mean? What could we do more then overcome our known sins. Do you know that we can even overcome things we don't even know about? How many here knows themselves perfectly? Ah. Therefore, there's things we have to overcome we don't know about. And in that most holy place experience, which the 144,000 will reach, They look at each thing in that most holy place and they say, okay, there's the Ten Commandments. Now, if I understood those Ten Commandments in a broader, deeper way, I'm probably going to see what in my life? More sin, right? I'm going to see more, but if I only have a shallow, narrow understanding of the commandments, then I might think I'm pretty good. But if I had a deeper, broader understanding of how beautiful each commandment is, which is a representation of the character of God, If I really took time, as David says, I meditate upon your law day and night. And it's like, well, there's not even that many words in the Ten Commandments. Why would he do that day after day, day and night? Why? Because he's trying to get a deeper understanding of God's character as expressed in those Ten Commandments. And as he sees more and more the beauty of God's character, he starts seeing where he yet falls short. But that's okay. He wants to see this. Why? Well, he asked forgiveness for his known sins, and through his experience in the holy place, he overcame his known sins, so it wouldn't matter what God shows me. God could show me any fault in my character, and because I had victory over my known sins, I know he'll give me the victory over my hidden sins. Have you ever been out in the ocean, and uh, you ever heard of a, a, an undercurrent? Now, there's just certain times you just don't go out there because it could wash you out to sea. And that undercurrent could be so strong, if you're not a strong swimmer, you're not going to make it back to shore. And those undercurrents could be like hidden sins in our life. We don't see it, but it affects us. So the person who has struggling with patience might be having a problem with temperance. And without temperance, you can't have... I mean, if you don't get enough sleep and you're trying to be patient, good luck. If you're trying to have patience and you don't drink enough water and you're dehydrated and you feel fatigued, good luck. You see, the the temperance part is what's going to help give them strength to overcome the impatience. It could be an, an undercurrent in our life. But this is the structure we're going to follow as we go through the sanctuary. So we'll probably just be able to end with talking about just this environment, freedom from the environment of sin, because the first thing God did is he took his people out of Egypt, out of this Egyptian environment of idol worship and materialism, and he says, this is no good for you. I want to take you out of this environment and be a people who then could make me a sanctuary so you're in the right kind of frame of mind and environment to appreciate all that I'm going to teach you about the plan of salvation. Does that make sense? Now, 
the home environment. You know, that the, during Passover, the Jewish people used to, I don't know if they still do, they used to take little pieces of leaven, and leaven represents what? Sin. And so before Passover, the parents would take little leaven, and they put a little over here, and they hide some over here, and they hide some. And they say, okay, children, come here. I want you to find all the leaven in the house and get it out. What were they teaching their kids? Put away sin. If you see anything in the house that would draw a member further from Christ, it's got to go. Does that make sense? Get all the leaven out. And so we, we take a, an inspection of our home. And we think about the potential leaven in our home that could draw a family member further from Christ. And we say, how are we going to cooperate with this plan of salvation if we still enslave ourselves as this environment of sin? You know, friends, it does matter what you watch. It does matter what music you listen to. It does matter what you read. Your conversations matter. You see? We want to... You see, as I have on the, on the board there, there's... There's a difference between getting the leaven out and taking the time to create an environment of holiness in the home. Sometimes we can have homes where we just, we look at what's bad and we get rid of the bad, but we fail to do what's good. Does that make sense? We don't just want to get the things out of the home that could create an environment of sin that leads someone further from Christ. We need to create something in the home where the children can't wait to get home. They look forward to family worship. All the kind words, all the kind acts creates an environment. Sacred music creates an environment. Is this true? The activities you do as a family creates an environment from which we all are influenced, and on those fluences we make our decisions. We want to create an environment in our home where every member in the family is drawing closer to Christ. Is this right? And that takes time. It takes effort. It takes communication. It's about sitting down and, and making those choices because guess who's coming soon? Jesus. And he's given us a plan of salvation to cooperate with so that we're ready. Also, when it comes from the freedom of the environment of sin, our association. You know, I, I didn't become a Christian until the age of 20. I was halfway through college at Ohio State. And the job I had when I became a Christian was I was a bar back at a discotheque. I wasn't 21, so I couldn't sell the liquor to anybody. I was 20. And when they were running out of beer, I'd go in the cooler, I'd take it out, and I'd start restocking. And the day I became a Christian... The next day, I put in my two-week notice. I didn't know much about Christianity, only that Jesus loved me. But I knew I had to have different associations. I couldn't stay in that discotheque and listen to that music. I couldn't be part of selling liquor to people. I wasn't selling it, but I was stocking it. I knew I had to find, and so I did wind up with different friends. And sometimes that sounds hard. But I didn't know much about Christianity, but I knew that much that I needed to be where God's people were. And I went around visiting churches. I went to the Baptist church and the Methodist church. And I went to every kind of church you could think of. Campus churches at Ohio State. But I was still looking. And I, I'd go somewhere, and it didn't feel just quite right, but I was thankful to be going to church. I'd never been going to church my whole life. And now I wanted to be. I didn't want to be at a discotheque. I wanted to be in a church. And so... But God says, you still need to find a church. And uh, you know what really helped me in finding the Adventist church is that I'm 1% I'm Jewish. That's not very much. You know, we took the little test, you know. But I learned that at age 18, and I learned that Jewish people, what? Kept the Sabbath and didn't eat ham sandwiches. So you know at 18, I stopped eating pork. I wasn't religious. I was still in the world. But when I became a Christian at the age of 20, guess what church I was looking for? A church that kept the Sabbath and didn't eat ham sandwiches. 
So I go to the Baptist church. Guess what they have in every dish? Pork. And they keep Sunday. I didn't know what to look for. I was actually looking for a Messianic Jewish group. Couldn't find one in Columbus, Ohio. So I went and went, and then I saw this Seventh-day Baptist church. I said, there's the seventh day. I wonder if these Seventh-day Baptists eat pork. So I go to the Seventh Day, and prior to this, I had I would I'd be even trying to watch some of these televangelists, you know, like I don't think Benny Hinn was there. I'm too old for Benny Hinn, but um, but there would have been Oral Roberts, and some of those. And I remember trying to watch those, and he'd go like this to someone, and they'd fall back, and you know. And even then, I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> I don't. I'm looking for a church that heals. But there wasn't one Bible story that was like that, right? So I walk into the Seventh-day Baptist church, and guess what kind of service they had? A healing service. (laughs) Oh, man. I found the Sabbath. And as soon as I walked in, I walked right through doors like this, and there was a line of people, and the pastor was like this, and a person falls back. And I walked right out those doors. <laughs> I thought I was close. And then I looked in the yellow pages, and there's the Worthington Seventh-day Adventist Church. Seventh-day Adventist. Hmm. Seventh day. I wonder what an Adventist is. I wonder if they eat ham sandwiches. I mean, that's the simple thinking for me. And I go there. And do you know it was the friendliest church I'd ever visited? It literally was the friendliest. There were churches I never went back to because no one talked to me. But I went to this church, and people were so friendly, and I went back again, and I, I found out during that, tent, that time doing a little research that these people were vegetarians. They, they don't eat unclean food. And then I learned that they support 80% of all the medical missionaries around the world. And there I get, there's the healing part, right? No pork, seventh, seventh day, healing people. Wow. So I went back, second Sabbath, and the associate pastor says, would you like to have Bible studies? Do you know I had been a Christian for about a a year and a half then, and no one had ever asked me if I wanted Bible studies? And I said, absolutely. And six months later, I'm baptized. It pays to be nice. It pays to ask people if you'd like to study the Bible. You know, and it just does. Because, you know, there's a lot of churches that don't ask that. And we should more than anybody because we have have the truth. We've got this plan of salvation that everybody needs to know about. Because it's real. Everybody needs to know what Jesus is doing now. Not just what he did 2,000 years ago. What he's doing right now for us. And so I know God led me to this church, and I found new associations. I've had blessed associations. You're a blessed association. And I've been blessed by being with Ron Spear and Dr. Stanish, and those were good associations. Because not everybody in this church preaches the same thing. If I'd have been associated with people who taught air, I'd probably be one of the greatest, not greatest, but I'd be a, a, a new theology preacher. And for a time I was. For my first year as a pastor in this church, I was a new theology pastor until someone handed me an offer and foundation. And I thought, I, I'm not preaching the right thing. I didn't even know this stuff. God gave me different associations. And through those associations, I got to learn truth. Because that's what these people preach. That's what they wrote about. And it, it matters. It matters which church you go to. It matters whose books you're reading. And what sermons you're listening to. And we're getting close. And all we want to hear is truth. Because truth will set you free. And let me just close with this. On this part. The sanctuary was in the midst of what they call the plaza. So in this, the sanctuary was, wasn't a big structure, right? But the tents started two-thirds of a mile away. They weren't that close. And they called that kind of a plaza area. At least the rabbis did. So when you, when you would bring your sacrifice, and you're coming from your tent, whether you're Benjamin or whatever, 
eventually you get to the plaza area and you're walking two-thirds of a mile with your little lamb and people could be watching, but you know it doesn't matter. Because the reason you're bringing a lamb isn't for everybody else. It's between you and God. It's to be right with God because that's what the whole sanctuary is about. If you're right with God, you're going to be right with your fellow men. Is this true? And this is where we start. It doesn't matter what people say or think or whatever. It's what God thinks, and it's our relationship with God. You begin there with this sanctuary and all that it's teaching. And this is what we're going to focus on for a few Sabbaths at least, right? Is the plan. Is the plan of how God's going to save us. But one the, the lesson, let me end with this. There's millions of people in these tents. And if you're a Moabite on a mountain, you look down on the encampment of Israel, and you saw millions of people, these 12 different sections... And, the, and he saw this little structure in the middle of them, the very center of them. And there was this two-thirds of a mile all the way around. You would say that for this people, what was the most important thing to them? Would be that structure. And you'd say, if I want to know who these people are, I need to know what that's all about. And that's what people ought to be saying about us, right? And that's the way we need to be. Amen. That that sanctuary and what's happening in that sanctuary means everything to us. It represents all of who we are as a people. It's what Jesus has done as the lamb, courtyard. But friends, we have prophetically, we've moved on prophetically beyond the holy place. Jesus is in the most holy place. And he's looking for a people who understand what it means to have a most holy place experience. And when he has enough people who have a most holy place experience, what's he going to do? He's going to walk out of that most holy place. And he's going to take off his priestly garments, going to put on his kingly garments. And he's coming back. Praise God. That's why we've been raised up. And what gets us there isn't printing presses per se, isn't radio stations, as important as they are. It's our understanding of truth and walking with God so that we're walking right into the very presence of God in that most holy place where we become one with Him. Same purpose, same motives. What He loves, we love. What He hates, we hate. That's where it's going to have to be. And that's, that's what this sanctuary is going to teach us.